Give Me Liberty is brought to you by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. America faces a crisis. Too many Americans don't know why they should love their own country. Ashbrook's mission is to change that. Since President Reagan inaugurated the Ashbrook Center in 1983, its mission has been to strengthen constitutional self-government, educating students, teachers, and citizens in America's history and founding principles. Ashbrook just released an essential resource for rediscovering the principles and history of our country called The American Idea. The volume presents the American story through a few key primary documents and invites the reader into a rich conversation across time about the central idea that defines America. The American Idea is available as a free digital download and for purchase. Visit ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. That's ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. My name is Richard Brookheiser, and welcome to Give Me Liberty, the making of American exceptionalism, the podcast about liberty, America's exceptional idea. Before we were even a country, Americans were thinking about liberty, working for it, fighting for it. We've been doing it for 400 years. This episode is number seven, Movements in This Hemisphere. James Monroe looks to liberty abroad. And today I have with me my friend, colleague of many years, Jay Nordlinger. Jay is interested in a million things, politics, music, usage, manners, and mores. But he's also particularly interested in freedom fighters and people struggling for liberty around the world. So today we're going to talk about such an episode in the early 1820s. Jay. Rick, I'd, I'd like to ask you, uh, pretend I'm in third grade or so, and maybe I am. What is the Monroe Doctrine? Well, the Monroe Doctrine uh, was a name given to President James Monroe's annual address in December of 1823. We would now call this the State of the Union message, but then it was just known as the, the annual message or the annual address. And uh, the name Monroe Doctrine got attached to it because even though he covered the whole panoply of uh, American government interests and issues that he thought were important, he, he announced uh, early in this address uh, that he would also be speaking about foreign policy, which was kind of a departure. We weren't, we weren't engaged in any wars at the moment, but he was going to look at the world scene because he thought uh, the American people, who were the ultimate sovereigns in the system, had to know what was going on in order to make intelligent choices about it. And I should just add that this was not a speech. It, it was not given to Congress as a speech the way um, uh, State of the Union addresses are now. It was a, a written address that was presented to Congress. Hmm. And, and the Monroe Doctrine is what? What does it say? Well, um, maybe we should we should back up and, and look at the situation he was, he was trying to address. Uh, in 1820, 1821, there seemed to be a, a worldwide pattern of revolutions. Uh, there had been revolutions in Spain's colonies in the Western Hemisphere going on for a number of years. 
Spain itself uh, had a revolutionary government which limited the absolute power of the Spanish king. Uh, they still kept the king but they, they tried to institute a constitution. Uh, the Greeks were also uh, revolting against their Ottoman masters. So these were uh, struggles for independence or for liberty uh, both in Europe uh, and in the Western Hemisphere and they caught the attention of uh, Americans and also of other European powers. Now the, the reaction of most of the great powers of Europe was hostile to this. They had, they had just been through a quarter of a century of war arising from the French Revolution culminating in the Napoleonic Wars. Waterloo had only been five years earlier, the final defeat of Napoleon and they just didn't want the world and Europe to go through that again. So the, the notion of uh, Russia, Austria and Prussia was that in order to prevent this from happening again, we have to keep the lid on. We can't change anything. So they were very hostile to these, 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 these revolutionary movements. Uh, the exception, uh, the partial exception was Britain which was very interested in being able to trade with Latin America. Uh, Spain had had a mercantilist system. They kept other countries out of essentially half of the world. Uh, Britain and its merchants very much wanted to get in on the action. So the independence of Latin America was something that, uh, that, that Britain would welcome, would be happy to see. Uh, a third player in Europe is France, the, the former uh, destroyer of Europe's peace, uh, now under a restored monarchy. And uh, this government, in order to, to curry favor with the powers which had defeated it, had, like them, a reactionary posture. They too were anti-revolutionary. Uh, they sent an army over the Pyrenees to restore the absolute power of the Spanish king. And the French foreign minister, a man named Chateaubriand, better known as a great writer, which he was, but he was also a politician, uh, he had an idea that, that they should squelch the revolutions in Latin America by installing princes from the Royal House of Bourbon which was the Spanish royal house and sending them across the Atlantic to run you know, Buenos Aires, uh, Mexico, uh, New Granada or Colombia uh, to put them on an on a absolutist political footing. And uh, Britain approached our ambassador to London in the fall of 1823 to ask if we would join them in a statement opposing this. Hmm. And so the Monroe Doctrine says stay out of our backyard? Well, this is, this is the final conclusion but President Monroe, like any president in a fraught moment, he's, he's hearing different things from different people. Mm -hmm. uh, the Speaker of the House is a man named Henry Clay. Uh, towards the beginning of Henry Clay's career, he's uh, a great politician. He's a great orator. He's a very charismatic figure. And he is caught up in the drama of the Latin American revolutions. He says in a, in a speech to Congress that Latin America is like our elder brother who is finally tasting the rights to which nature and nature's God have created him. So he's really making a link between the American Declaration of Independence and what is going on in Latin America. He's, he's very pro 
these revolutions. The uh, Secretary of State is John Quincy Adams, son of the second president, John Adams, and uh, he takes a more skeptical view. Uh, he thinks that Latin America can never have free institutions. Uh, they are destined to be either despotic or turbulent, probably some combination of both. He thinks it's just baked into their history. And he has a conversation with Clay about this. I mean, the, they know each other. They've been on diplomatic missions together in the past, and he's trying to throw cold water on these sentiments of Clay. Now, he does agree with Clay uh, that these countries will become independent. Of that, he has no doubt. He thinks Spain's days in the New World are done, and you know, Mexico and Argentina, Colombia, and the rest will certainly become independent. He, he just disagrees with Clay in thinking that they will ever be countries like the United States. And then also in Monroe's cabinet is John Calhoun, Secretary of War. He's a politician even younger than Henry Clay, equally ambitious, and he is very worried that if the reactionary powers of Europe follow Chateaubriand's advice, the French project of setting up puppet princes in Latin America, that they could easily accomplish this. And we would have to uh, really be militarily prepared to resist such a venture. So these are, the, these are the, the thoughts, the advice that are swirling around President Monroe uh, after he gets this offer from Britain to join with Britain in trying to stop this before it happens. This Monroe doctrine, his pronouncement, was it kind of like an executive order? Well, he, there was – when he finally delivered it to Congress and in, in his message to Congress, there was no proposal for legislation that accompanied it and Congress didn't pass any. And when Henry Clay finally becomes secretary of state, this is after Monroe is no longer president, John Quincy Adams is president, Clay becomes his secretary of state even though they've had these disagreements and Clay does – does admit to one of his diplomats that if Europe ever you know, tried to act on their reactionary project, our response would be entirely the responsibility of Congress. Mm -hmm. It couldn't be something that the president could just do on his own. One thing that strikes me about the Monroe Doctrine, unless I'm misunderstanding it, it's so audacious. And I'm thinking um, you said something like uh, – United States wouldn't look kindly on actions by these powers in South America and so on. What the, what the heck could the USA have done about it? How would you have backed up the Monroe Doctrine, this little ragtag nothing nation in the 1820s? I mean, isn't this, this like a yappy little dog, you know, telling the German shepherd he better watch his step? Well, it sort of is. Now, you know, when the proposal came from Britain, join us in a joint announcement that Britain and the United States both deplore this. Now, Britain being part of that announcement meant something because they had the greatest nation in the world. I mean, if they don't want Bourbon princes crossing the Atlantic, they can stop them, right? They can sink all their ships. It's just not going to happen. So British participation would have been the teeth in this. But one of the pieces of advice that President Monroe got from his Secretary of State, John Quincy Adams, was – we shouldn't go into this 
along with Britain. His phrase was, we don't want to be a cockboat in the wake of the British man of war. In other words, we don't want to be a little dinghy um, trailing after, after the, the British Navy. We want to make a statement about what we think and how we think Europe should behave or not behave in the Western Hemisphere. We ought to do this on our own. In a way, it was um, a council of national self-assertion. And this is uh, what Monroe finally does. He makes no allusion to Britain at all when he finally gives his statement. He's expressing uh, his views about the views of the United States and what we would consider a threat to our own interest, which would be a double-headed thing. It's both foreign interference, the fact that foreign countries might interfere in the destinies of our neighbors. But it's also political interference that they might try to restore the old system that we and they had shucked, which was monarchical government. So it was both a geopolitical thing, but it was also a political philosophical thing. You know, we don't we don't want you Europeans back here, but we also don't want your kings back here. Kings are over. In this half of the world, kings are over. That's what Monroe was saying and that's what I think what was most audacious. And did Monroe think he could do something about it or was he pronouncing some ideal or some wish? I think he was pronouncing an aspiration. Mm. I think he was trying to fix it in the minds of the public. That, that's the reason he's inserting it in the message. The, the U.S. public. The U.S. public, uh, yes. This leads me to ask you, maybe this is unanswerable. Did word of the Monroe Doctrine reach – I may use this phrase, the common man in South America uh, or the Americas generally? And if so, what did he, the common man, think of it? Did he think he had some great ally and champion in Washington? Well, I think it's ironic. There, there were reactions in Europe which were mostly hostile. Sure. I mean certainly from, from Russia. Russia was very caustic about this. That this should just be treated with contempt. Uh, the prime minister of Britain would try to claim some years later that he'd been the instigator. You know, he said, I've called the new world in to rectify the balance of the old, you know, meaning that he was the guy who got this going. I mean, in a way he was since it was his, his offer that, that got people thinking, although we didn't end up doing what he'd wanted. Uh, I think the reaction of, of Latin Americans was – uh, was kind of shrugging it off. I mean, they were they were doing their revolutions for their own reasons, and they weren't um, they weren't all that interested in in what we were saying or doing. Um, their train had left the station already under mm -hmm. its own power. So it was really uh, a statement, I think, aimed at in the first place the American Congress, but also in the American people. You know, Monroe started it. He prefaced it by saying that. The people are the sovereigns in our country, the people, the voters. And to vote intelligently, they have to know what's going on. So therefore, I'm going to talk about foreign affairs in this annual message more than you've been used to hearing. Hmm. Rick, this is an old question concerning Jefferson and others. But um, Jefferson, speaking about South America, spoke of emancipating a continent. Wasn't that a little rich from a slaveholder to be talking about emancipation? 
Well, I, uh, look, he, he – What a word. He spoke about emancipating America from Britain. So that, <laughs> that, that's, that's where the contradiction yeah. uh, starts. Yeah. But, you know, in Monroe, um, not only does he consult with his cabinet, he consults with his patrons and mentors and friends, former President Jefferson. And that was quite President. a presidential club. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Uh, friends and neighbors yeah. from uh, – Sorry, I cut you off. You were going to say Madison? Yes, Madison uh, also. Yeah, yeah. He wrote uh, both of them and said, you know, what, what, what do you think about uh, this? And it's interesting that Jefferson, who I think throughout his life was an Anglophobe, he, his initial reaction and was – Francophile. And Francophile. Yeah. But his initial reaction was go with this British offer. Hmm. You know, man, if we get the Brits on our side with this, the world can't do anything. And, and the Western Hemisphere would, would be moved to the column of, of freedom. Rick, you mentioned this glittering talent, uh, Henry Clay. Uh, why did he never become president? Well, he, he was a glittering talent. I think he, he often outfoxed himself. He had a way of being too clever politically mm. and of rethinking things too much and therefore bollocksing himself up. Uh, you, you can certainly see that playing out in, in the last election in which he, he runs for president, which is 1844, and he loses to James Polk, and it's a very narrow loss. And, you know, you, you could say that he shot himself in the foot. Um, you also get enemies, you know, when you're a glittering, ambitious, sharp-elbowed, eloquent, somewhat nerd not somewhat, narcissistic personality. You know, people, that, that rubs a lot of people the wrong way and they're out to get you. But, uh, but on the other hand, uh, he stays in the Senate practically till he dies in 1852 and he's a titan all that time. So he has a 40-year a career in American politics. That's not too, not too shabby. Henry Clay I identified with the strugglers and strivers, independent seekers in the Americas. And I love something... Uh, you've said this, you've quoted this, um, that Abraham Lincoln would say about Clay, yeah, he loved his country because it was his country, but he really loved it because it was free. That's right, yes. Lincoln Lincoln took that very seriously. Lincoln, of course, was from Kentucky, which was Clay's state, uh, so he'd watched Clay's career very closely. They were both in the Whig party. uh, uh, Sorry, can Lincoln be said to been from somewhere? What, would you give the nod to Kentucky over the other states that claim well, him? No, I know. This, they all, this is just a small point. But yes, yeah. we'll, we'll get a lot of uh, angry yeah. uh, responses yeah. <laughs> from people from Indiana. Hoosiers and Illinoisians. Yeah. Well, but I, I'm just trying to explain yeah, his sure. connection with Clay, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the two Kentuckians. But, but Lincoln did believe, and I think with some justice, that, that Clay uh, was very wedded to the idea of liberty and the ideal of liberty. And that did animate him, animated him at his best. And, and this was something important to Lincoln personally and also politically as a politician. He, he wanted to, to make the argument to former Whigs like himself, look, our great champion was for liberty, so we should be now in the 1850s. This is much later than the Monroe Doctrine, but when the country is headed towards the Civil War. I, I think one, one other um, wrinkle on the Monroe Doctrine, which we, uh, which we shouldn't ignore, is what did Monroe say or not say about Spain and Greece? Because these are the other um, hotbeds of, of revolution at opposite ends of the Mediterranean. 
And in his initial draft, he was going to criticize uh, the European powers which had stifled the Spanish Revolution and he was going to propose recognizing Greece, going to propose that Congress do this and send an ambassador to Greece. And John Quincy Adams, his secretary of state, lobbied him to drop that on the grounds that for years we have been playing no role in European politics and we should continue to do that. You know, if we do that, we will make instant enemies of the reactionary powers of Europe. Why should we do that? So Monroe does drop that language from the final Monroe Doctrine. He, what he says is that uh, we are friendly to these struggles. We look with sympathy on these struggles. But purely European matters, uh, we leave to the Europeans. And we will maintain our friendly relations with the powers that exist, i.e., the mostly reactionary powers of Europe. So he's – in a way, he's – this is his prudence. He's, he's drawing a line down the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and he's saying, you know, liberty, liberty is important on both sides of it and we're sympathetic to struggles for liberty in Europe on the eastern side of it. But what we care about as a matter of national interest is what's happening in this hemisphere and we want to let you know that we don't want you trying to bring kings back into our half of the world. Rick, I'd have to get out a map or Google or something, but are London and Paris and Berlin and Rome and so on farther away from Washington and New York than name your South American capitals? Well, I mean, certainly I, not Buenos Aires. I, I wouldn't suppose. think so. No. Well, but he's also, you know, it's partly realism. I mean, these are world powers. Sure. Now, was Austria going to send an armada over here? Well, no, but they don't. They don't have a big navy. Uh, you know, France had had in the past. Britain certainly had. Uh, we had. We certainly had a lot of trade with Russia. We had a Baltic trade with Russia, which was pretty important. So we would be reluctant to lose that. So yes, it's closer than many places in the new world but there's also power differentials and interest differentials. And what's, what struck me about Monroe's message to Congress is the mixture of idealism and prudence. I mean this is an idealistic statement and really the first of others that would follow in American history. But it is also a very carefully thought out one. It's a very calculated one. And he's drawing a line. He's saying we have sympathy on both sides of it. But we will feel our own interests threatened if you come to our side of it, to the western side of it and try to restore monarchical government in this hemisphere. Would that in fact have threatened U.S. interests? Well, it did. Ironically enough, you know, after, after Monroe is dead – Napoleon III tries it, right, during the American Civil War. When we were distracted by mm. our civil war, mm. he sent an army to Mexico and he put a Habsburg prince on the throne of Mexico. This was, this was Maximilian. Now, now I'll sound like Pat Buchanan and others. How does that affect us? Well, it was uh, our border 
Yeah. We certainly thought it affected us. As uh-huh. soon as the Civil War ended, and we made very clear that we did not like this. And Napoleon III was willing to sneak an army behind our backs when we were you know, at each other's throats. But once the Civil War ended, he, he knew the uh, dynamics had shifted and, and that, was, that was when he pulled out of Mexico and that was the end of Maximilian. Well, Richard Brookhauser, a couple of more uh, toward the end here. I, I wonder if there's anything to say about nationalism in connection with the Monroe Doctrine. Well, it's certainly a statement of national self-assertion. We were laying down a marker to the great powers of Europe. We were reading them a little lecture. Now, as we said earlier, there was no legislation attached to this. It wouldn't be referenced in America again until the 1840s. President Polk would mention Monroe's statement. And John Quincy Adams was still alive, you know, the former Secretary of State. And someone asked him about Polk's remarks, and Adams said, "Oh, I entirely agree with him. You know, he's absolutely right about that because Adams had had a role in this uh, in this document." So it's it yes, it is it is a tremendous act of self-assertion for this country, which is still, I mean, it's physically large, but the population is is growing by leaps and bounds, but it's still you know, sort of a medium-sized country and certainly has no great military or navy and yet we are announcing to the powers of Europe, these are things we won't like. Mm. Rick, you, you've sometimes heard, we've sometimes heard in the last couple of years from Trump administration officials, uh, you know, we can't have this tyranny in Venezuela in our hemisphere. They add the word, you know, in our, we can't have this tyranny in our hemisphere. We don't talk much about hmm, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Turkey, Russia, China, North Korea, so on. But in this hemisphere, they say about Venezuela. Um, is, that, is that an echo? Is that, is that some sort of reverberation, do you think, of the Monroe Doctrine all those generations ago? Oh, I'm sure it's deliberate. Hmm. I'm sure it's deliberate. Uh, it's, it's, channeling, you know, it's channeling President Monroe and Secretary of State Adams and the whole, the whole does it, cabinet. Does it matter in this day and age when – Nuclear missiles, for example, can fly halfway at least around the globe. Well, this will be the subject. The world of, feels so close. This will be the subject of later podcasts. Ah, okay. But you know, things yeah. things that are in this hemisphere, I think, do resonate with us in a different way uh, than many other things in the world. Uh, you know, we have the phrase "the new world." And that's that's just kind of a concept in people's heads and. You sort of feel that that expresses a reality. Good nickname I mean, for a symphony, right? Yeah. And a good, a very good symphony. Yeah. Even though, as you pointed out, that like southern Chile and Argentina are much further away from the United States than London, but still, the New World seems to mean something. You know, maybe it means even more as we get increased immigration from countries south of our border. You know, rather than say Europe, which was the source of a huge source of immigration in the late 19th, early 20th century. So, so yes, I think, I think it means more and it also means more because of what Monroe said and did, mm. right? Because we all have heard of the Monroe Doctrine. You know, we were taught about it in school. We probably forgot what it was and when it was, but we were taught about it and the name sticks in our heads. And 
to some extent, so does the concept. So I, I think the phrase, the phrase you were saying, we don't want Venezuela, this Venezuelan tyranny in our hemisphere. I think that was, you know, very deliberately aimed at drawing on those sentiments and those old realities. Would you call James Monroe something like an advocate of liberty universally? I think so because he said we look with sympathy on the struggles in Europe, meaning Greece and Spain. So he's saying we are sympathetic to you. Would Monroe make the top 10 presidents you admire? 10? I came to admire him more after writing about this episode. Huh. You know, in school, I, I learned that, well, the Monroe Doctrine, it was all John Quincy Adams's idea. You know, mm -hmm. he was the Secretary of State. Monroe just signed off on this. But that's not, that's not true. Monroe, Monroe really pushed it. Uh, it was his decision to address this in the first place. Uh, he took Adams's advice to, you know, not uh, go full-fledged into uh, talking about Spain and Greece, but he did express the sympathy for it. So I think I think this statement is legitimately called the Monroe Doctrine, rather than say the Adams Doctrine. Anything else you'd like to say, Rick Brookheiser, before we say goodbye? Some some sort of benediction to give us about. The Monroe Doctrine and well, it its place in the American story or in the story of liberty generally? It shows how politics can produce sometimes very resonant things because mm -hmm. all the people who were advising Monroe, I mean except for Jefferson and Madison who had already been president, but uh, Clay and Adams and Calhoun, they all wanted to be president. They, they were already running for president. The, the race to succeed Monroe was on and, and that, you know, that had a role in the kind of advice they gave and the kind of stances they had. So you know, they're politicians just like the ones we're, we're listening to today and yet the result of their efforts was something lasting, something memorable, something worthy to be remembered. So maybe that's a council of optimism about politics. Yes, it's ambitious and it's grubby and it can be sordid, but you know, sometimes these pals come up with something worthwhile. Give Me Liberty is brought to you by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. America faces a crisis. Too many Americans don't know why they should love their own country. Ashbrook's mission is to change that. Since President Reagan inaugurated the Ashbrook Center in 1983, its mission has been to strengthen constitutional self-government, educating students, teachers, and citizens in America's history and founding principles. Ashbrook just released an essential resource for rediscovering the principles and history of our country called the American Idea. The volume presents the American story through a few key primary documents and invites the reader into a rich conversation across time about the central idea that defines America. The American Idea is available as a free digital download and for purchase. Visit ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. That's ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today.